This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, spring season of 2018. This is uh, episode 2 for spring, talking about the tumultuous episode 14 of Darling in the Franks. Well, you didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? Because of the consternation I think this episode has caused, I'm doing things a little bit differently today. I'm going to address what I feel about this episode in a section here at the beginning, uh, give us something to pay attention to throughout the walkthrough, and then we'll revisit what happened and why, who should be held responsible, and where they can all go from here. So as I've mentioned before, I work out my scripts for these shows in isolation. I don't join community boards or discussions. Uh, I don't really want other people's theories or interpretations to cloud my own. Usually the only interaction I have with anyone else watching the show is in the comments section of these videos. And of course, I've already said my piece by then. But I was pretty sure people were going to have some strong opinions about this episode. So I scrolled down and looked at a small sample of comments. Well. It seems people have some strong opinions indeed. There's unmitigated hate for Ichigo and her role in events. There's shouting down of people differing from the consensus, and even people swearing off the show altogether. Far from an indictment of the show, these kind of reactions mean that they are doing something right. Having people care about your characters, to get emotionally invested in their successes and failures and well-being, that's basically the victory condition for writers. Now, I realize there are probably a lot of frustrated people out there right now. Uh, episode 13 was such a high note. We had so much missing history filled in, so much emotional inertia, uh, we had the climactic payoff of the two of them realizing that they found one another, and so it might seem like the showrunners are toying with us, giving us a taste of a satisfying development, and then yanking it away again before there's even a chance for it to be savored. You know how I feel, though? I'm ecstatic. I am so optimistic about the remainder of this show, and there's two main reasons that episode 14 makes me feel that way. The first one, and the less important one, is that our chances for a happy ending just went way, way up. If you remember last time, I pointed out all the story patterns uh, that were referenced directly or indirectly by the series, and how they strongly suggested we were watching a tragedy. If this episode had been all about Hero and Zero Two being happy together, and all those hints about the story we were in last time would say that that joy was a fleeting thing. Cherry blossoms just waiting to fall off. Remember, we still have 10 episodes left. Let's pretend for a second this episode went a different way. Neither of them changes uh, into more of a beast. They recognize each other. The gaps in their memory are filled in. And they fall into each other's arms, their long journey finally at an end. Her darling at last discovered, Zero Two has no more reason to be antagonistic, Hero has no more reason to doubt himself, Ichigo has no more reason to hope for Hero, and the Thirteeners have the most divisive element in their midst pacified in probably the only way possible. There's minor issues they all need to sort out still, 
But basically, everyone is way better off just like that. What do you think then happens for the next 10 episodes? Five hours of Zero Two feeding Hero bread with honey? An open rebellion with no casualties? All the parasites pairing up and making babies after casting down the adults? Followed by more bread with honey? Yeah, no. This show is about the parasites in general, and Hero and Zero Two in particular, and the upheaval in all their relationships is the story. All of the other stuff is background. The focus is whether Hero and Zero Two can make it or not. If they get together in episode 14 and everything's great, then by episode 24, everything will not be great because otherwise there's no story in between. The struggle against the Klaxosaurs has never been the main event. This isn't an action show with love subplots. This is a romance and character drama with a mechs and monsters subplot. Remember all of our story parallels from last time. The three Shakespearean dramas, the beast and prince, the little mermaid, uh, even the red and blue Oni story. In absolutely all of them, the couple is together midway through the story, and thus the end of the story becomes about them separating. They're all tragedies. Let's talk a second about story patterns, shall we? In antiquity, early dramas fell into two broad categories, comedy and tragedy, something you've probably seen represented by the smiling and frowning masks in uh, theatrical aesthetics. You know what the biggest difference between these two categories is? It's not the number of jokes, or the amount of violence, or even the flaws of characters. Both story types thrive on deeply flawed characters. No, the main delineator between comedy and tragedy is how the story ends. Comedies end on a high note, tragedies end on a low note. In fact, most existing comedies or tragedies can basically be rewritten to either extend or shorten the story and turn it into the other type of drama just by changing where it ends. All stories need tension, right? Uh, it's what gives a story a sense of motion. Thus, you typically have either a rising or falling mood at any single point. Since comedies end on a high note, you typically have a story pattern that looks like this. It starts either high or neutral, falls through the middle as things complicate and go downhill, but by the end, characters have overcome things and uh, it ends happily. Tragedies, therefore, need the opposite pattern. They start low or neutral, and then things seem to get better for a time, only for some sequence of events to plunge the characters into disaster by the end. Two main patterns, comedy and tragedy. So, where are we in our story? Episode 14 of 24, so just past halfway? Which part of these stories would we rather be halfway through? If we'd stayed at the emotional high of last episode, then it suggests we're over here, and we should be holding our breath for how things fall apart. Instead, we're about as low as we've ever been, so we're over here. Doesn't this suggest a certain future for our main couple? Now, don't mistake me, this isn't a comedy. Um, that's just an obvious counter to tragedy, the thing we think we might be in, but maybe we're not. We aren't guaranteed a happy ending just because things are low now. You know, it's entirely possible for a couple to find each other right at the end and it still be bittersweet. But if everything seems happy acting into Act 3, well, watch out. We didn't just get promised a happy ending, but it just became a lot more likely. Whichever way it goes, though, it's far more important for a story to have a satisfying ending than a happy one. And this episode convinced me that we have a great chance of that happening. And that is the second and more important reason that this episode excites me. You see, 
An ending is satisfying when all of the elements that create that ending progress in a believable way out of the rest of the story. Characters act in a way that makes sense for their characterizations, the rules of the universe behave in a way that we've come to expect, and thematic patterns get a final emphasis and argument. We aren't satisfied if a character suddenly behaves differently for the sake of tying up loose ends, or if the hero has some hidden superpower never before suggested, or even if a story is all about the tension between freedom and duty, uh, and then decides to be all about true love right at the end. A good ending, basically, is predictable. Not in the sense that it's obvious, but in the sense that it is able to be predicted. The elements for the way things play out should be contained in everything that led us there. In hindsight, it should be obvious that the story could only have ended the way it did. Now, what does that have to do with Darling and the Franks? Well, the short version is, the writers had the opportunity to use an emotional payoff to skip over character flaws, and they didn't take it. They stayed true to their characterizations. This episode went the way it did because the three main characters all have a huge defining flaw, and all three of them acted in a way consistent with their flaw. This means that the writers are serious about having the characters face their own shortcomings. They're serious about seeing these characterizations to their end. Look, every character in this series with any real development has been given some fundamental flaw, some glaring issue at their core that alters how they interact with others. Kokoro has a fear of confrontation. It keeps her from getting closer to Mitsuru early on, it keeps her from speaking up during the Girls vs. Boys episode, and it allows her to make a promise she does not really mean, something which had real story consequences. Similarly, Mitsuru has problems with intimacy. His sense of rejection from the broken promise causes him to keep all others at arm's length. This prevents cohesion in the team, and it sabotages his original partnership. It nearly gets him and Kokoro killed when his stubborn refusal to lean on others culminates in a poorly timed crisis of self. Goro, too, has a flaw, despite being probably the most admirable person in the whole cast. His flaw is a lack of self-care a form of stoic silence that causes him to bear things alone rather than trouble others. Having some of this character trait is not bad necessarily, but Goto has taken it too far, something Ichigo chastises him for during episode 10. This flaw of his very nearly gets himself and the girl he loves killed, and it potentially allowed Hiro to die when he decided to bear the secret of the Blue Heart himself. But the writers have had all three of these characters show progress on these flaws. Goro decides to confess how he feels to Ichigo rather than suffer in silence. Kokoro chooses what she really wants and doesn't back down from Mitsuru's attempts to put her at arm's length. And Mitsuru makes some small peace with his past and then speaks a promise of his own, allowing Kokoro to get inside his defensive perimeter. All of these characters were introspective about their own issues and actively took steps to confront them. And yet, their journeys are not complete. Inside just this one episode, all three of them have moments of slipping back into their shortcomings. The showrunners indicate to us that these characters are still works in progress, but at least they are in progress. So with that in mind, let's look at what makes this episode so good, our three main characters and their accompanying flaws. Zero Two's major flaw is a lack of empathy. This is the real way in which she isn't human. She doesn't care about the fate of others, doesn't care about being a teammate, she doesn't care how much angst she's caused or blood she's spilled. She's never had any consequences for this flaw until now. Hero's major flaw is a lack of confidence. 
The unexplained dissent in his aptitude eroded the self-assured boy who dispensed names and rescue missions into the passive, self-destructive hero that we've known so far, a boy who clutches greedily at any measure of success. This keeps him from standing up for the things he believes and from confronting and pushing against the people he cares about. And finally, Ichigo, for all her excellence in the role of leader, has a massive hole in her judgment whenever it comes to Hiro. This episode went the way it did because of these three and their flaws. All of them contributed. Had even one of them overcome these flaws, it would have played out differently. If Ichigo had taken a more measured approach to finding out the truth early on, or if she hadn't tried to interfere at the end, Hiro and Zero Two might have gotten to have the conversation they needed to have. If Hiro had been self-assured enough to confront Ichigo or Miku early on, they might have been able to get on the same page that way. And if Zero Two had not spurned her teammates all along and then gotten violent with them at the end, it still could have turned out differently. And in fact, all of them do make some small progress against these flaws in this episode. Zero Two shows the squad her vulnerability and she assents to their conditions in order to get to see Hiro. Hiro takes action, eventually, acting against the desires of his team in an effort to understand Zero Two. And Ichigo relents and allows the blockade of Hiro to drop, even letting Zero Two enter his room alone at the end. But it's all too little, too late. All are complicit. All are punished. This whole episode was act of desperation after act of desperation from these three. None of them are getting their character problems hand-waved away for the sake of getting Hiro and Zero Two together. And that's the reason we should be excited. Even at the risk of backlash from their fans, the writers are serious about doing right by the characters they have created. This ultimately will give us a much more satisfying story. I mean, was it really going to be okay to give Zero Two a pass on everything she's done before now? All the blood spilled, all the casual indifference to her teammates, the manipulation of Hiro, the deliberate antagonizing of Ichigo? Yeah, we saw where she came from, and she's immediately more sympathetic and relatable, but she's not that little girl anymore. Similarly, was it really okay for Ichigo to never get a real confession to Hiro? She tried before and got interrupted by chance. Persisting in this way where she can't talk straight about how she feels was only going to be damaging to herself and others. Regardless of the timing of it, would it really have been satisfying if it remained forever unsaid? And lastly, we now have a chance for Hiro's Pursuit of Zero Two to have far more significance. The two of them no longer end up together by default. It may be that Hiro can only pilot with Zero Two, and neither knew who the other was until just now. Staying together, in that case, is the path of least resistance, a choice that was made without all the information. He wouldn't have to face his own shortcomings, just maintain the status quo. Additionally, if Hiro had changed into the same kind of thing as Zero Two, it wouldn't have been his choice. Even if he was okay with the outcome, that still puts him in the role of a passive agreement, not active pursuit. Now that they're apart, they can end up together by choosing it, acting deliberately to see it done. We know all the parasites are headed to the same place, right? We know they're gonna get another chance. And so, that is the viewpoint we will be using to look at our episode today. What do these three do right, and what do they do wrong? As we go along, I will point out how each of their flaws contribute to the way events played out. At the end, we'll talk about who is really to blame for the way things went. We'll also look at what this may mean for their futures, 
and how each of them may have to answer Zero Two's earlier question. What is human to you people? So you have probably already noticed that we have simplified boards again. Uh, as I mentioned last time, my alter ego had to leave town, which cut a day off from the end of production process uh, last episode. That same trip is cutting a day off of this one just from the front end. Uh, the result is that we have simplified boards again. Uh, we will also be skipping theme section, just like we skipped goals and uh, conflicts last time. Uh, and we'll have reduced speculation and no boards at that point either, uh, which I'll talk about then. These have turned out to be the worst two episodes for me to have less time for, uh, but hopefully this will still be adequate. Um, and we did have extra things we talk about today, like that whole bit about story structure and character flaws. We actually have one more bonus sequence, because we got something new in the credits this time. Translated lyrics. They aren't very long, and it's actually kind of timely to have them presented, so let's go over them for a bit, um, and I'll put them over here for reference. We start with the speaker beckoning to the listener and speaking of inhibitions crumbling. As these words are sung over images of a nude 02 posing alluringly, it is reasonable to assume that the song is sung from her point of view, presumably toward Hero or at least her concept of her darling. She is hoping to entice, to be inviting, but it is tempered by this fact. She knows she is dangerous. Now, danger and excitement and attraction can all walk hand in hand, to be sure, but she instead wants him not to fear her. It's not a command, it's more of a plea. Please don't fear me. She is admitting her desire and her vulnerability together uh, from the very beginning. Next, we have the line about flightless birds dreaming of the sky. Um, that's on point with all our talk about bird and flight metaphors, so I actually think we understand that one just fine. Then there's a line about that sky's colors blending into the wrong shade of red, and this plays over the red and blue background colors swirling together in a way that suggests both liquid mixing and the two of them mixing. Considering how important the color of one's blood has turned out to be, I feel like that is partially what the line references, but it's now also drawing a parallel between blue sky and blue blood. Though they change toward red, as Zero Two's own blood has, it's not the right shade of red. In the case of blood, it means that she has not become as human as she wants, it's the wrong shade, and in the case of sky, it means the future and freedom dreamed of has not come to pass. Either it is incomplete, or the dream still is. Next is, I tried to block out the banging on my door, which I take to mean that someone wants her to let them in, but she is ignoring it. Of course, it doesn't literally mean to let them in through a doorway, but rather to let them into her, into her heart, into her priorities, into the space behind her defenses. Interestingly, this plays over the roster montage with all of our partner pairings, which gives it added subtext. After all, Hero is not the only one banging on someone's door wanting in. Practically all of our characters are trying to draw closer to someone else, and many of them have had that person block out that banging, as the words say. This is not an interpretation we would have understood back in episode 2 when this opening first showed up. We also would have only had good context for this next part after this episode, where the door banging metaphor continues with her asking if you are the one banging on it or if it's someone else. Now that we have a clearer sense of how she has been thinking of Hero, 
the you the song is addressing appears to mean her missing darling. Hero is knocking on her door, but is that her darling or is it someone else? How will she know as long as she's trying to block it out? Also, taken with the previous line, the door banging can encompass more than just a romantic advance for all of our characters, but the larger concept of trying to get past the barriers that each of them erects around themselves. All the characters we've gotten any insight into has turned out to be bearing some secret, some burden they are reluctant to admit or share. Some have managed to do so, some still have a ways to go, but this metaphor of ignoring people banging on their door can extend to more than just Hero and Zero Two. In a way, this pair of lines gives us a nice visual metaphor that sums up the main tensions of the series. The following line gives our opening bit its title, Will Your Lips Taste the Kiss of Death? Much like the opening stanza, this line pairs enticement and danger together, this time with much more extreme concepts, the intimacy of a kiss and the finality of death. Zero Two embodies both ideas for Hero. She is risky but alluring, she is potentially lethal to be with, but that does not make her any less desirable. She is these two concepts together, and the line plays over an image of her licking what is likely honey from her lips uh, in a provocative way before leaning in to kiss Hero. It's interesting that she is both the temptress and the aggressor. She's not just a danger that you want to pursue, she's a danger that will come after you as well. She's honey laced with poison, sweetness and deadliness together. And yet, the line is a question. Will you taste the kiss of death? As of right now in the series, that is still a question we don't know the answer to. Death, after all, can mean more than just physically perishing. Like our ongoing death and rebirth theme suggests, a death can mean the end of one set of circumstances or characterizations, and the beginning of a new life where something else is pursued or valued instead. After this episode, this question hangs over Hero's immediate future. Will he taste this kiss? Will he try for it? The next line makes the darling as the person addressed more clear, and states that their destiny courses through their veins. While this line can be read metaphorically, that their fates are as much a part of them as their own bodies, it can also be read more literally, that the actual composition of their blood will have great bearing on the outcome of their stories. This not only plays nicely with the idea of the sky's colors earlier in the song having a parallel in blood, but it also highlights how important the red-blue blood color and the yellow blood cells have been to the story, and how important they likely will continue to be. The next line notes that a change is sweeping across the world, and then questions if the change is love. That might seem a little hokey, but I think it's two concepts together. One is the idea of, well, of a change sweeping across the world. It's an observation of a world in transition. The question is, what is the nature of this change? Removal of the Klaxosaur threat? Achieving the future of calmness and uniformity? The end of a need for children altogether? Or, if all our assumptions are right about our 13ers being a catalyst that causes upheaval in plantation society, the sweeping change could be revolution, a new order, a tearing down of all that calmness and uniformity. So the question, and it's important that it's a question, the question becomes, is that change love, or maybe caused by love? Like I said earlier, this series is a romance and character drama with an action sideshow. Even something as far-reaching as completely overturning the social order is just a backdrop for the central tension between these characters and their hearts. Considering the type of world they live in, 
their situation that allows them to experience love and act on it might quite literally be the thing that allows the world to be upset, to overturn the sterile, infertile, isolated lives that almost everyone else lives. But it is a question. Is love and the things that love inspires them to do enough to affect change worldwide? Going into the second half of our show, that seems like a pretty important question. Next, we see an uptick in how aggressive the speaker is being. They stop asking questions or spinning metaphors and admit it straight. I want us to come together more than anyone. This is similar to the mixing together of colors from earlier in the song, something that at that point was represented by the blue and red swirl, and at this point in the song is represented by Strelesia, in which the two of them are joined, breaking apart further and having them physically connect. I didn't notice it until this time, but the way they draw Zero Two shattering through the cockpit sphere is a strong parallel to Hero crashing through the glass in last episode to rescue her from Garden. Finally, a refrain of that earlier plea, Don't Fear Me. And another one, Kiss Me Now. This song is partially a presentation of the risk she represents and the potential for failure. After all, the idiom kiss of death means something that precipitates disaster. She wants to come together with her darling, but she is danger and desire together, inseparable. You must face one for the other. Will our love be the thing that causes change to sweep through the world? I don't know. Can we mix the sky and our blood to the right shade of red? I don't know. Is it you, really you, trying to get through my barriers? I don't know. By the end, all of the agency is surrendered to her darling. It is his prerogative to act or not. She wants him to kiss her, and all that means, but the question remains of whether his lips will taste the kiss of death. It is fortuitous to have these lyrics for us at this point, as all of that plays very nicely with what I've already said about the potential course of the story. The questions in the song are still unanswered, the threat she represents is now laid bare, and yet the appeal she holds for Hero is still substantial. Now that he knows she's the kiss of death, it will be all the more meaningful if he chooses to kiss her once more. Into our actual walkthrough, uh, we pick up where we left off last time, in the middle of Hero remembering his past and Zero Two's part in it. He is narrating and asks himself how he could forget something so important, as though he doesn't realize that his memories were intentionally altered. You know, last episode we had he and Zero Two alternating their narration duties, uh, and they often intercut as though it was a conversation. This reflected the togetherness that existed during most of the episode. This episode, they both narrate, but they are back to taking turns, underscoring the fact that distance has once again opened up between them. In scene, on the outside, we have Delphinium continuing to try to disrupt Zero Two's efforts to drain Hero, but inside, Hero shocks Zero Two by revealing his part in her past. This disrupts her recklessness, just as we saw last time, and she turns to him with tears streaming down her face. Let me ask you, do you think there's any chance she was crying before he said anything? Like, that she might have been having to relive some of those memories and uh, was having a moment of her own? That would explain her question of whether or not he saw. Like, she wondered if he was able to see what had been going through her mind. I really think this is a possibility. She wants to kill Klaxosaurs because she thinks it brings her closer to her darling, and so every time she goes to pilot, there's a chance that he's on her mind, that she walks back through some of those memories and ends up beside herself, emotionally vulnerable but facing away from her partner where he can't see. 
I could even see that fueling some of the spite and violence she directs towards them. How dare they potentially see these precious memories? Hero indicates that this has happened before, which further suggests this possibility. He's referring to episode 6, where he died, or nearly did so, and had a vision of her under the tree, waiting for him, as it turns out. No wonder she looks so sad. The chance of a tender reunion evaporates, though, when the damage Zero Two did to Hero causes him to slip in and out of consciousness. Faced with this and his words, Zero Two is horrified. The idea that what she has been doing to Hero was actually her damaging and changing her own precious darling makes her mind real. The way she questions if he was her darling from back then seems like it answers our question, that she did not recognize Hero before now. We get a rare moment of uncertainty in her voice, as the gravity of her mistake begins to dawn on her. Not only has she been treating her darling the way she has treated Hero lately, but she has also wasted all the time they've been reunited chasing after the goal that she had already achieved. She's so shocked that she can't even react when Ichigo arrives on the scene. Now to Ichigo, who knows that Zero Two is causing Hiro to lose his humanity, this view looks very much like she's trying to finish the job, and she pulls her off of Hiro. Goto catches Zero Two and notices the state she's in, asking her if she is okay or not. But the two girls are each transfixed by a single thought to the exclusion of all else. Ichigo is fixated on Hiro and his well-being, still shouting encouragement even into the next scene when he's carted off by the medical team. Zero Two, meanwhile, is so stunned by having her life revealed a lie that she moves in a stupor, hardly aware of what else is going on around her. In her mind, she goes over the things Hiro had been saying to her, about speaking her mind and wanting to understand each other. She had been blowing him off, it seems, not really comprehending what he meant. She has an empathy problem, like I said, and if someone isn't her darling, then she doesn't care that much about trying to hear what they are saying to her. Now that she knows Hiro is her darling all along, she thinks back to all the things he said. I think she realizes they are all things she would have wanted to say to her own darling. Bringing their minds close together is now, too late, just the thing she would have wanted if she'd only realized. After the credits, Hiro is in the hospital, apparently in far worse shape than I would have guessed. Uh, we see that there are physical contusions on his neck from the choking he received from the red avatar of Zero Two. Who would have guessed that this was more than just a metaphorical strangling? Nana fills us in on his condition, that his yellow blood cell count is way too high, and even now he could begin sorification at any moment. Hachi further adds that his mind is hazy. It appears they are interpreting whatever Hiro has said since then as a hallucination. You know, I joked last time about Nana proclaiming that their minds connecting was a bad thing, but what if? What if they know there is some mind tampering going on here? What if they know there are some secrets that are supposed to remain so? And is this Hachi trying to create a type of deniability about the validity of anything the two of them might have shared via Mindlink? Or is the memory wiping episode not anywhere in his notes, nor any encounter between the two of them? That would also make any suggestion of a shared past sound like a hallucination, right? Is it possible Dr. Franks is the only one who knows the secret here? I'll speculate some more about that at the end. Either way, it sounds like they intend to call the partnership off over the risk to Hero. We find Zero Two in the hangar, mine still a swirl from Hero's reveal. She is still fixated on Hero as her darling, but at least she has moved to a state of action, and she moves to find him. She's so fixated, though, that she does not hear Ichigo attempting to waylay her. 
She's resolved to talk to him, but, well, look at her emotions here. She's sweating and she's biting her lip. She's anxious or nervous. Is that the emotion of someone rushing to be reunited to their love? Or is it the emotion of someone who knows they have done wrong and are dreading facing the music? On re-watching this, I think it's the latter, that Zero Two is feeling guilt, something she doesn't usually do. Credit her for trying to go and face Hero over it, though. But there are consequences to her actions. Putting Hero in the hospital is one of them. Making a barrier out of Ichigo is another, giving us one of the most confrontational scenes in the series. Before diving in, I'd like to draw attention to Ichigo's arm in the sling. This seems to reflect the damage that Delphinium took while tackling Sleresia. We had already figured out that pain, at least, was transmitted to the pistols while connected to their franks, uh, but now it seems actual damage may be as well. This answers a question I had back from episode 5, when it was revealed that Zero Two had contributed to the death of the 26er leader's partner during combat. Considering how small those cockpits are, I had wondered how she could die without him. Surely any lethal damage to that cockpit would catch them both. Now it seems that enough damage to the Franks might actually be fatal for the pistols, a danger the stamen do not seem to share. Considering our sexuality reproductive metaphors here, I wonder if this is akin to the way women risk themselves for childbirth while men have no such risk. Food for thought. In our actual scene, it's clear from the reaction of the other squad members that Ichigo has not explained at all why she attacked Strelizia during the previous mission, nor has she shared the information she got from Nine Alpha or from overhearing Nana and Hachi. Considering the way she traded words with Nine Alpha in defense of Zero Two, I feel like Ichigo really was giving Zero Two the benefit of the doubt. I believe her when she is saying that she had misgivings, but she thought Zero Two had started to fit in and become teammates. Giving that benefit of the doubt really comes around to bite her when Zero Two really does try to make Hiro lose his humanity, and it probably makes Ichigo not just mad at her, but mad at herself. Mad for letting Hiro even get into that situation when she knew it was a risk. Some of the hurt and anger Ichigo is feeling here is directed at herself, and this makes her all the more unforgiving and uncompromising about the situation right now. On Zero Two's side of things, her casual disdain and indifference to the people who would see her as their squad mate now works against her. The other 13ers all start out seeing Ichigo as the unreasonable one, and even suggest excuses for Zero Two's behavior, or disbelief at the motives that Ichigo details. I've pointed out that even though Zero Two's combat uniform changed to match the rest of Squad 13, her civilian dress never has and this was just one of the many indicators we've had that she is not integrated with the rest of them as a fellow parasite. Now that we see the other's willingness to consider her feelings and even back her, it's more clear that this separation was mostly Zero Two's fault. She wasn't pushed away, she never approached in the first place. This is a manifestation of that character flaw I brought up before. If she had ever decided to treat with the rest of them and get to know them, this moment might not have turned against her so much. Additionally, her own hesitancy in seeing Hiro with the guilt she bears means that a determined Ichigo is enough of an obstacle. Without anyone else advocating for her, she backs down. Next we see Hiro waking from his latest brush with death, surrounded by his squad mates, all except the one he really needs to see. Ichigo is at least honest about the situation, and when she asks if he knows why, his hand goes to his bruised neck. He knows why, 
and I guess he's not entirely sure how he feels at this point, and so makes no protest. They make to leave him to recuperate, having seen him wake up and given him encouragement. Though Hero can't see Zero Two at the moment, the person he next most needs to see is there, and it reflects well on Hero that he takes the earliest possible opportunity to try to set things right. Though he is unable to explain that his memory has been tampered with, uh, and indeed I'm not even sure he realizes that part, he at least indicates to Mitsuru that the promise was forgotten, not disregarded. Mitsuru, despite making some progress on his standoffish ways, is still not ready to touch this subject with Hiro, and attempts to wave it off before Hiro can do something like apologize. However, he tries to offer Hiro some advice rather than just being contrary, so we have to assume something like healing may begin between them. Mitsuru, of course, has first-hand experience on being on the receiving end of Zero Two, so his advice should carry more weight than most. Despite warning him off, Hiro's reaction is actually to smile a little, knowingly, uh, and admits that he must at least ask her something. Mitsuru quips that there goes Hiro, poking his nose into trouble again, a part of him that hasn't changed a bit. Hiro thanks him for this comment, and I think it is a kind of a low-key endorsement of Hiro's thought process. A nose for trouble and challenging the norm was a hallmark of the young Hiro that everyone idolized. Reminding Hiro of this aspect of his seems like gentle approval that he should still do what he thinks is right, even if they disagree. One last detail before diving into Hiro's memories again, uh, from the monitor behind Hiro, it looks like our calendar has advanced into February, so it seems we're not out of winter yet. Anyone think we might wind up in spring for the conclusion of this, when cherry blossoms are back in bloom? Now alone, Hiro reflects on the question he needs to ask Zero Two. We see his descent after the incident, something we had guessed at, and how it culminates in his and Naomi's failure. Hiro surmises that her blue blood must be the cause, which is something we suggested last time, uh, then it might be the reason that he washes out with everyone else, and also has an opposite yellow blood cell reaction to piloting with her. He says that his life ended once already, and it uses the image of the injured two-winged bird to accompany that statement, so I guess we were spot on with that metaphor. He got a second life of sorts through meeting Zero Two and regaining the ability to pilot. It seems clear in retrospect that since no one else could fly with her and he couldn't fly with anyone else, that the mixing of blood is the culprit. The question he is wrestling with is, did she know? Did she know all along from the taste and the kiss and everything else that he could only pilot with her? If you remember way back in episode two, I wondered if she knew that he and Ichigo were going to fail based on her knowing smile when they lost connection. Now the question of whether she recognized him or not seems less clear. It seems she may indeed have noticed that he has her blood in him, and so should expect things like the failed test trial, and the blue heart, and that he would be able to pilot with her again and again. Is it possible she could only detect that he tasted like he had some blue blood, and not that it was her own blood? After all, she found the way he tasted to be exciting, while she hated the way she herself tasted. She also tasted Ichigo, declaring her sweet, but is it possible that that also told her that Ichigo and Hiro did not both have blue blood, and so would later fail? Hiro voices the question, Did you know all along that I could only ride with you? What is interesting to me is that it's not clear if he thinks she remembers their past or not. I feel like he is assuming she remembers everything, and it may be that he was already passed out when she asked if he was her darling back at the beginning. If he believes that she remembers everything, 
then a lot of her behavior does start to become suspect. It's easy to understand his suspicion and how it paralyzes him at first. Zero Two herself knows she bears some guilt, and we cut to her continuing to worry her fingernails, sitting alone, just as he is, in a dark room. Next up, we get a briefing on our background narrative concerning the Grand Crevasse and future missions. It seems that it is a structure of some kind, circular, and many times the size of a plantation. We also see that the plantation numbers go pretty high. I think there's a 123rd one in that graphic. Then we get the explanation that Nana had promised a few episodes ago. It seems every plantation squad and the Nines are all conducting a joint operation together. The Thirteeners all exchange a bit of worried looks at this. Are they nervous about the scale of the operation? Of having to fight alongside other squads and be spurned like they were with the 26ers? Is it the idea of taking the field with the Nines that bothers them? Nana begins to outline more information that they should expect a counter with numbers and it will be the hardest mission to date, but Ichigo interrupts. It seems they have gotten together and decided to present a united front against Zero Two. Although you can tell there are varying levels of conviction about the decision, they have closed ranks against her in the same way they had closed ranks for her before. What a mistake it has been not to treat these pilots as her comrades and teammates. For though Zero Two is not going to pilot with them anyway, as Nana reveals, they still will make good on their determination to keep her away from Hiro. And they will keep Hiro away from her as well, as Sentry Miku proves. Hiro is still full of doubt and questions at this point, and his still ailing self-confidence keeps him from challenging Miku. He doesn't want to push against her anyway, but his determination to reach Zero Two seems very weak at this point. Zero Two, by contrast, has had no relief from the building stress of the past episodes. Her resolve is not weakening, but strengthening. Unfortunately, her caution does not go with it. Before this, her advancing sorification had put her into a panic, as getting further from being human meant getting further from being reunited with her darling. She worried her nails, became violent with guards, and even turned against her biggest advocate. Now, having actually found her darling, she's still getting further away. What's more, her guilt at what she's done to him can get no release, but builds up alongside her stress. Now that they intend to separate them, she's quickly approaching the most desperate point of her existence. Yet, because neither of them communicate any of this to the others, Zero Two doesn't because she's made herself an outsider, and Hero doesn't because he's full of misgivings, because of this, the rest of the squad has no idea what is building up in each of them. Zero Two retreats to her room, awash in sorrow, trying to figure out why they are being kept apart. She just wants to see her darling and talk to him. And they give us the bird metaphor again. This time, each of them are two-winged independent birds, who alight for a time on a branch together, chirp a bit, and then fly off in different directions. Not exactly a gin bird pair at this moment, are they? Hiro is also alone in his room, but when Ichigo comes to visit, he does not let her see him out of bed. Curious. She has come under the pretense of cutting up an apple for him, but she really just wants to talk. She leads by telling him that Zero Two is going back to the Nines. I guess it's good of her not to intentionally keep him in the dark, and she does not lie to him about when it is going to happen, and how they have a big mission approaching. Then she asks him, rhetorically, if he hates her. She indicates that she knows some of what's going on with him, and asks him not to see Zero Two because she knows he won't ever be the same. She wants him to think of their team, and how they worry about him also, and that even if he hates her, 
to please stay put. He apologizes, and at first it seems she thinks he means that he is apologizing because he is not going to do what he asks. In actuality, this is true. Hiro does not intend to stay put. However, he continues by indicating that his apology was for the worry that he caused everyone. This is a tough place for Hiro. He doesn't want to push against his squad mates, who are all showing him real concern. From their point of view, it's like they're intervening in an abusive relationship. Tough love, but love nonetheless. And yet, a critical part of his confidence and his past rides on answers that he can only get from Zero Two, uh, which is to say nothing of the conflicting feelings he must have. So here is where both of them, I think, screw things up. Although Hiro is full of doubt and confusion, this is a perfect opportunity to explain to Ichigo everything he just discovered about his past. Who Zero Two was, how they met before, the promise they made, why he went through everything he had since then, and why he must confront her at least once for his own sake. Ichigo also has this opportunity. She knows he wants to see her, how they feel about each other, and it's out in the open and they both know it. But she could try to understand why he is acting the way he does, could question him on why he would still want to see her in spite of the risks she presents. Neither of them takes this opportunity, and I think a good part of the reason is the same for each of them. It's because of Ichigo's feelings for Hiro. Hiro is clued into this now, thanks to Goto, and I'm sure there is some hesitation to gush over some other girl in front of someone you know carries the torch for you. Likewise, Ichigo is probably in no hurry to hear why Hiro would chase Zero Two at his own peril. There is a special type of hell in watching the one you love love someone else, so they avoid it. At least Ichigo tried to explain some of herself to Hiro. He doesn't even do that much, and basically deceives her about his intent. There is a little more to this scene, Ichigo cutting herself in her poorly executed attempt at Usagi Ringo. Perhaps both the blood and the red horns remind Hiro of Zero Two, so Ichigo's attempts at caretaking backfire a little bit. They also provide Hiro the tool he will later need to break his quarantine, which means deceiving Ichigo was premeditated on his part. It's a real commentary on the flawed dynamics in their relationship that he can't just be honest with her. Intercut into all this, Zero Two is making a decision of her own. She thinks back to Ichigo's pronouncements about her not having a place anymore. And yet, rather than looking inward to find fault, she finds self-pity instead, saying that no matter how I disguise myself as a human, I could never be one of you. She does look legitimately sad while she says this. She thinks that this is why she wanted to kill lots and lots of Klaxosaurs to become human. And while we get a host of flashbacks during her internal monologue here, we get a scene that's brand new. While she is thinking about the need to kill Klaxosaurs, we see young her standing in front of some of the ape council members, evidently in their odd sky council room or somewhere similar. Based on her reaction, it appears we are seeing the moment that she is being told that killing Klaxosaurs can make her human. Now we have a pretty good confirmation that this motivation comes from the ape council themselves, which of course makes me instantly suspicious of it. What follows that is her alternately thinking of her darling from the past along with scenes of Hero when he is suffering in some way because of her. She starts to say something, but stops, though we can guess later on what that was about, so we'll revisit it then. The unsaid thought spurs her to think no more of decorum or civility. She is going to see her darling because he is all she has. 
Thus, each of them, at the same time, decide to defy the rest of the squad in order to see the other. Zero Two breaks her blockade, and Ichigo returns from her visit with Hiro in time to see the rest trying to contain her. Goro is flung bodily into the window, so we know a line of escalation has been crossed. When Ichigo arrives and Zero Two insists she is going to see Hiro, Ichigo doubles down on her resolve. She has shied away from Zero Two a lot in the past, being the one that blinks, but this whole episode, she has not backed down. Even now, when it's clear she could be putting herself at risk, she comes right up to Zero Two to challenge her, and does not even squirm away when Zero Two grabs hold. I mean, there's no question which way this would go if Zero Two snaps, right? But Ichigo confronts her anyway, accusing Zero Two of intending to continue to lie to Hiro. And Zero Two does snap, in a different way. For the first time I can think of, she shows vulnerability to everyone. Until now, whether she's aloof, or confrontational, or pensive, or even teasing, she's always projected an image of being self-assured. Hiro is the only one that has seen her when she isn't composed. It's a testament to her desperation that she would show this side to them. She is, in a sense, throwing herself on their mercy. And it works. She seems earnest, and Goro and Kokoro both are convinced of her genuine need to see Hiro. I want everyone to take note of which two it was that spoke up here. Goro and Kokoro both have figured out lately that they feel a certain way about someone else, and both took steps to face their own flaws because of it. They relate to the estranged pair, and I think they recognize Hiro and Zero Two's ache for each other because they see it in themselves. Goro's endorsement especially speaks highly of him. He has just been manhandled by Zero Two, but speaks up for her anyway. He does not spite her for his own mistreatment. He also imposes the condition that everyone go with her to see Hiro. She agrees, even if it rankles her pride, but she at least will suffer that much to speak to him. They arrive at the hospital room, catching Miku completely off guard, and it seems that though neither Ichigo nor Zero Two is perfectly happy, this conversation will get to happen anyway. They are even going to let her go into the room and speak to him alone. Just have to open the door, and everything will be fine. Uso. Ah, crapola. You know, you two could have stood to be less in sync just this one time, you know? The Thirteeners investigate the room, realizing what must have happened. I'm sure Hiro meant to visit Zero Two and sneak back, never alerting Ichigo that he deceived her, but she's seen it now, and I'm sure it hurts her. Unfortunately, they have all waited too late to let this happen, allowed Zero Two to get too worked up over her darling slipping away from her. Zero Two's stunted empathy is not enough to override her violent anger, and things fall apart. Hiro, of course, has made it all the way to Zero Two's room without crossing their path, and starts to ask the thing on his mind. Did she know? Did she use him? Which he would have to assume if she did in fact recognize him from the start. Once he realizes he's having a one-sided conversation, he enters and sees the result of the stress that Zero Two is keeping pent up. This includes finding the Shattered Mirror, which, as I've said before, is probably a direct metaphor to both the state of their relationship and her own self-loathing. Finding more evidence of violence, and no other squad members, Hiro deduces he needs to get back to the hospital room. In that room, our tragic episode reaches fever pitch, as Zero Two's hold on her own humanity has slipped enough for her to do violence to her own squad. Though the sight of Hiro calms her down, the damage is done. Even the casual tossing aside of Ichigo cements her complete lack of concern for her teammates. Hiro's teammates, 
and there's probably nothing more she could have done at this point. Hiro rushes to Ichigo, and bless her heart, she urges him to run, to save himself. Zero Two is a bit crazed still, eyes aglow, and tries to begin the conversation she's been dying to have with him. She's lost all sense of the appropriate here, her imploring and pleading voice in stark contrast to the damage all around her. And then Hiro, for his part, chooses the worst moment of all to be confrontational, and says the thing he can't take back, the things she feared all along, that he thinks she's a monster, that she's not human. It's the final shot to her system, and she comes down from her crazed state. And in her mind, she confesses the reason for her guilt and stress. She did indeed set Hero up to become the same kind of thing as her. She even knows she deserves punishment for it, and calls it as such. Man, that is awful. Um, as near as I can guess, my thoughts about Hero being a replacement goldfish for her darling might be nearest to the mark. That while Zero Two always wanted to become human and find her darling, she was willing to entertain Hero as a darling stand-in for a time, seeing if she could make him like herself. I don't know when she would have figured she could do this, or if it's something she's always experimented with, or what. Um, I believe there was genuine affection between them at times, but the episode-long guilt and stress she's been under makes me believe that she did not recognize him after all, but rather had been treating him almost like darling practice, even saying the lines from their youth together. However it happened, once she realized he was her darling in truth, the weight of what she had done to him, and to others, starts to be something she can relate to, something she can internalize. Causing harm to others didn't matter to her, not even to her own teammates, but causing harm to her darling? That she can understand, and hate, and fear, and feel remorse for. As awful as it is, this makes it possible for her to see the harm she causes others as harm, for in her indifference, she struck out against the only person that mattered. If she learns from this, it will be by seeing Hero in all the people she harms or might harm, and she may begin to take a little more care with the lives that are not her own. Of course, that does no good for this moment. We catch up to Zero Two as she is being packed up and led out of her room in Mistletoe. Her horns are noticeably larger, and she has returned to the subdued and aloof Zero Two we saw in episodes 9 through 11. She passes the gifted mirror on the bed, the shards collected into a bowl. It is even more damaged than it was, just like their relationship, and she considers it for a moment. Does she leave it there, abandoning the remnants behind her? We don't actually get to see. She proceeds without incident through the house, the parasites nursing their wounds and watching her go. Goto and Kokoro both give her thoughtful looks, and Kokoro seems to want to say something, but she abstains. Hiro waits outside, alone, and though he seems to hope for a moment that something else will happen or be said, Zero Two walks past him, impassive, completely withdrawn back into herself. She proceeds away, and Ichigo comes out to console Hiro, convince him that it was for the best. And what she finds is... Hiro is crying. Honestly, I kind of love him for this. Despite his doubt and his sense of betrayal, in the moment when they seem to part, he is overcome with all the fond memories he has of her. And this is key. They are all memories from their recent past, not from their youth. All of these moments that flash through his mind are from how he feels about her without knowing anything else of their history. That's where his mind goes when he thinks he's lost her. Compare that to Zero Two's earlier thoughts, 
and Ichigo's thoughts in a moment or two. Both of the girls think fondly of the hero that was, while Hiro is thinking fondly of the Zero Two that is. And so, he's ready to throw Propriety away and take off after her. Neichigo tries to stop him and plead with him. She refuses to let him go. She cannot seem to make him understand that he is going to turn into a monster if he doesn't stop. She even says that she'd rather die than let that happen. Can't possibly be more clear about how strongly she feels about this, and everything about her tone of voice says that she's panicked. But Hiro is still turning away, still going to try to chase after Zero Two. And so then it becomes Ichigo's turn for some really unfortunate timing. We cut the kiss in the middle to see Zero Two arriving at the hangar. The insufferable Nine Alpha is there to pretend it's a welcome homecoming, and points out the rows of stamen that have been selected for her use. And then he says, use as many as you like. It would appear this is standard operating procedure for Zero Two before she ran into Hero. The comments in the past about how there were many stamen who would want to pilot with her appear to bear out. She says nothing and betrays no emotion throughout the scene, disappearing into the cargo ship with her own imperious air. As Hiro and Ichigo break apart, Ichigo has to explain herself. The only way the timing of this could get worse is if Goro suddenly happened upon the scene. Welp. Now, I'm positive this is not the circumstance in which Ichigo wanted to try to confess herself again. You know, letting him get over Zero Two a bit, supporting him in the meantime, and then broaching the subject at a later date is the smart play. But like Hiro himself in episode 12, the desperation she felt caused her to use whatever she could think of to try to disrupt his mindset. Both of them felt strongly about the wrongness they saw in their love interest behavior, and so both of them tried to counter with another thing they felt strongly about. It didn't work for Hiro. It's not going to work for Ichigo either. Hiro is even looking down and away from her, guilty with the knowledge that he doesn't return her feelings. Ichigo isn't just confessing how she felt about their kiss or how she's idolized him all along either. She even expressly states that she intends to be the one he rides with, potentially leaving Goro in the lurch. Whether that even works out or not, she has just introduced more instability into her squadron. They already are returning to having just four Franks with Hiro as the odd man out, the exact situation that began the series. Complicating it by breaking up the strongest existing team just shows how her poor judgment with regard to Hiro is a fatal flaw. She is prioritizing a chance at helping him over the surety of keeping her team strong. As if an echo to how the series has returned to where it started, we get this mirrored image of Hiro looking up through the glass dome to see a transport plane flying ahead. Just as before, that plane bears Zero Two and Strelizia, and Hiro is once again a partnerless, flightless bird who dreams of the sky. This time, though, the transport is bearing her away from him rather than toward him. It seems plain to me that we are now leaving the first half of this anime, and I'm not sure things are any better than when we started, but I think we know now what needs to happen, which direction our characters should point themselves. To understand that, let's revisit our discussion on character flaws and how it shaped things, and how it will shape things. So, now that we've gone through all that, who is to blame for this gut-wrenching turn of events? I think this is a misplacement of emphasis, honestly, but uh, I will toss my hat into the ring anyway. I said at the outset that I thought that all three of them shared blame, that 
All of them acted in a consistent manner with their character flaws, and so this is the result we got. But if I look at the scope of what happened and why, and in what ways it could have played out differently, then I conclude that the person most at fault is 0-2, and the person least at fault is Ichigo. At first glance, it may seem that Ichigo bears the most blame, especially because of being the person to make a mistake right at the end, but one of the big reasons she seems like the main culprit is because she's the proactive mover in this episode. She sees a danger in conflict and chooses to act, decisively, protecting Hiro as best she knows how with the information she has. Hiro's main fault is in the things he does not do. He explains nothing, preferring to deceive Ichigo over disagreeing with her, and then he waits too late to act. Twice. All of Ichigo's actions proceeded out of the knowledge she had. If Hiro had set her straight even a little bit, things might have gone differently for everyone. He can't even claim ignorance the way she can. He knows at this point how she feels, he knows that she's acting without the full picture, and he gets the perfect opportunity to set her straight and repair the damage, and he chickens out. How can we hold that against her rather than against him? And then there's Zero Two. She, too, chooses to tell no one the information that might have altered their course of action. At least Hiro had the excuse of uncertainty, of needing to set the story straight with Zero Two because he suddenly doesn't know if he can trust her or not. Zero Two is the only one with the full story, and she keeps it to herself. But forget the lack of information here. Forget that Ichigo didn't have it, while Hiro and Zero Two decided not to share it. It's complicated, I know. What about everything else that happened? Like, if Zero Two isn't trying to drain Hiro, then absolutely nothing in this episode takes place. She incites the entire thing. Even before she did that, the whole series she has given no thought at all to the rest of the squad, even though they had come around on considering her one of them. Even Ichigo, whom she has antagonized repeatedly. So, Zero Two's actions before this episode set up the situation, her actual actions initiate it, and then throughout the rest of the episode, she is uncooperative and uninformative, allowing the situation to fester and build, and then at the end, she overacts with violence to the very people who just showed her mercy and understanding. That's too much for even Hiro to look past. And heck, even in that moment, Ichigo's thoughts are for Hiro to run, to save himself. Yes, Ichigo reacted hastily and easily believed the worst about Zero Two, and this is partially because of how she feels about Hiro and how Zero Two has treated her. Even in that initial confrontation, though, Zero Two is given a chance to explain. She can salvage it right then. But instead, she is too proud, too dismissive of her squadmates to do so. Explain herself to these so-called pilots? Only me and my darling matter, I do not explain myself to the likes of you. Well, what is Ichigo supposed to do? Ignore a credible threat to one of her squad? Are we really okay with her doing nothing when he is in danger? Or any of them? Remember the extreme lengths she went to for Goro. If we're surprised that she acts, then we haven't been paying attention. Doing nothing, that's more of a hero move. And hey, let's not forget, Ichigo was right. She was right about Zero Two. She was a threat to Hiro. She was trying to change him. If it had been Goro that discovered all this and then kept them apart, would anyone be directing the same amount of hate his way? I seriously doubt it. And so that actually gets to the crux of it. 
The reason Ichigo makes herself a target is because she is interfering with the one true pairing of Hiro and Zero Two. Since this series is mostly about those two and whether they can get together, Ichigo is actually an antagonistic force. She's an antagonist. The writers have set her up to be a roadblock and given her multiple reasons to do so. Some selfish, some unselfish. Everyone who roots for Hiro and Zero Two to make it, and I'm one of them, has to look at Ichigo as a threat, as an obstacle. Holding him back from rushing to Zero Two is one thing. Daring to kiss him though, when we want him to end up with someone else? Unforgivable. But guys, Ichigo is going to be a tragic character. Look at her parts in the story so far. Absolutely no one in the series has done as much for the object of their affection, with the possible exception of young Hiro, and yet she has almost zero chance of getting what she wants. That's heartbreaking. Of course, all of them are in for heartbreak if they can't face their flaws. Like I said, I'm excited about where we are going because the writers have given them a chance to do just that, to make themselves right apart before they make themselves right together. Doing this will mean trying to answer Zero Two's question about what human is. Ichigo is fixated on Hiro, and the idea of him becoming something else is so disagreeable to her that she'd rather die than let it happen. But does that mean if he changed into something less human, she wouldn't love him anymore? Would he be so different a person? Is it not him that she is in love with, but the idea she has of him in her mind? Does she love the young hero she admired and followed, rather than loving the current troubled one who loves someone else? If she can't think of hero as hero if he becomes something else, what does that say about her love? Is it actually love in that case, or some kind of infatuated ideal? If Hiro does change, will she have to reevaluate what she thinks human means? Or does her obsessive love die at that point, proving itself to be no love at all? And actually, Ichigo has the easiest route here. Zero Two, the one most at fault for the predicament, also has the farthest to go. She has believed that being human had something to do with killing Klaxosaurs that it was something to do with losing her horns and fangs and the red skin and the blue blood. That is what she thought it meant to become like her darling. But she missed the main thing about being human, and it's her fundamental flaw. She has almost no empathy. She doesn't care about anyone else, doesn't notice their pain or acknowledge their wants. It's exactly what causes all of her problems, making it possible for her to do what she did to Hero and eliminating any support or sympathy she could have had. And it means she missed something essential about her darling. He is a man of great empathy. So much empathy that he saw her, alien as she was, and saw someone in pain, someone in need, and someone he could love. He is very nearly empathy made flesh. All of his humanizing powers and sensitivity come from the empathy that is central to his being, and she missed it. How can she love him and not love one of the most important things about him? How can she attempt to be human while ignoring one of the most defining attributes of humanity? She can't, of course. And if she can't find a way to find this answer and pursue it, then there is no chance of happiness for her future, and that may mean she thwarts Hero's happiness as well. And so then, Hero. What is human to him? Is it something so essential to his identity that he can only give it up if he's willing to give up his sense of self as well? 
Does the realization that his descent began when he took in her blood means that he will reject the non-human side of himself in order to return to the boy he was? What if his only means to be with Zero Two is to surrender his humanness, to become a thing like her? Does he give it up in pursuit of her, at the risk of losing his place in society, at the risk of the friendship of his squadmates, uh, the closest thing he has to family? Or is being human, being a person, does that concept rise above this? Can it be granted with a name, by being loved, by serving some purpose, dying for someone else, or living for someone else? If the beast can't be with the prince because they aren't both human, then how much value is there in being human? This is the setup we have going into the second half. Our main three have some real work to do, and like I said, this has me so excited. See, TV Tropes has a trope called Earn Your Happy Ending, and the quote they use from that page is from The Count of Monte Cristo. The quote is, I don't think man was meant to attain happiness so easily. Happiness is like those palaces in fairy tales whose gates are guarded by dragons. We must fight in order to conquer it. Well, everyone is going to fight, I think. Zero Two will have to look long in the mirror and discover what being human really means. Ichigo will have to figure out if she can love Hiro and still let him be what he wants to be, even if that means letting him alone. And Hiro is going to have to rediscover what he lost since that day in his youth, and which parts are worth regaining. I said last time that Hiro and Zero Two would likely start to grow towards their old selves. I still think that, but it's not going to be like throwing a switch. They're going to have to work at it, but that's going to make the payoff that much better if they do. It means they can earn a happy ending, can earn an ending different than our storybook suggested. I think the person this matters the most for is Hero. His flaw manifests mostly as inaction. Growing and improving is going to call for action on his part. This is why I'm glad things played out this way, that Hero didn't just change into something else automatically. Now he has the choice of whether he risks anything at all. He can even do nothing and collect Ichigo as his consolation prize. If he pursues Zero Two now, it means giving things up. That's better than just being forced into it, right? If he changed into the same kind of thing without any agency in the decision, then is that actually romantic? Heroic? Even satisfying? I don't think so. Heroes started out playing the dashing prince back in their past, freeing the damsel from her tower and spiriting her away from her captors. He chose that. He had every opportunity to choose differently. She didn't even know he existed, and he still went through with it. That's why his actions resonated with us. That's why we were rooting for him. Compare that to his actions in the present, the first 12 episodes. You know what kind of prince he's been? The kind from the Beast and the Prince. The kind from the Little Mermaid. The passive prince. The recipient and beneficiary of the girl's extraordinary efforts. We already know how those stories played out, right? If Hero had simply changed into the same thing as Zero Two, then it would just be a continuation of that pattern. He would just be lucking into her, stumbling into the relationship. She just becomes his default option, his only option. Well, screw that. I don't know about you, but I want to see Hero pick up where he left off. I want the active prince. I want him to brave the forests and scale the mountain and swim the moat. I want to see him storm the castle and slay the dragon. I want him to know that he's facing transformation and even death and to face it anyway. Thanks to this episode, now he can. So to switch gears a little bit, 
Um, we do have goals and conflicts to talk about this time, uh, setting us up for our second half here. In goals, Hero's goal of becoming Zero Two's wings. Uh, well, this one is kind of hard to advance when they're apart. Based on how he feels at the end there, I think it's safe to say that he will still pursue this goal. Uh, it just got a lot harder. But as we just discussed, that eh, might be a good thing. Uh, Ichigo's goal of being with Hiro forever got one step forward and one step back. Zero Two appears to be out of the picture, not just physically, but the danger of the two of them piloting and the official transfer means that she and Hiro will not be growing closer anytime soon. This would appear to be a step on the way to this goal for her. However, the rushed confession at a terrible time means she's played her hand too early, potentially even giving Hiro a reason to resent her. So it's really one step backward as well, maybe even more. A lot depends on how much Hero's goal of being Zero Two's wings matters to him. I think it matters a lot, even before their shared past, so I think this ultimately works against Ichigo. Now, Ape's specific goal in getting Zero Two to the Grand Crevasse is still unknown, but it's clear they aren't going to let something like her whole world collapsing uh, stop it from happening. She's going to pilot and go there for whatever reason, even if they have to burn through a hundred stamen and transfer her away to make it happen. If Zero Two having a partner she really wants doesn't matter for their purpose, then you can argue that this is progress for them towards whatever this goal ultimately entails. Finally, with Zero Two's life goal, I said last time that it looked like Zero Two might have met her goal of finding her darling from back then, but it may not be as sure as we think. Well, it was not sure at all. She met him alright, but her actions precipitated the two of them being separated almost immediately. The quest for her darling now hangs on her. What will happen here? Does she consider her chance spent, wasted by her own recklessness? Can she even return to what she was without a goal to guide her? I think for a time, we might think of her as a new creature. Goalless Zero Two. She was willing to do terrible things in pursuit of becoming human because she thought it meant she'd get to be with her darling again. As long as she had her darling, nothing else mattered. Now that she has both found and lost her darling, what does she do? Will she stop doing the terrible things because it serves no more purpose? Will she stop obeying any authority at all because they no longer have a carrot they can dangle in front of her? Will she alter her behavior because of the consequences it has caused for her? Does she abandon this goal? Pick it back up? Choose something new? Now, this is really speculative, but I am going to guess that she starts out numb and goalless, aimless, taking her frustration out on the stamen that have been lined up for a chance with her. But somewhere along the way, she will snap out of the stupor and begin to think about her actions as though she was doing them to her darling all over again, and this will stay her hand. She may even be disrupted from piloting the way she has until now. She will have to look inward to figure out what she wants and what it will take to get there. This plays with my belief that part of the reason they are separated is because it gives them a chance to work on their flaws, and they can't truly be together while those flaws persist. Zero Two's lack of empathy was always going to be a long-term problem. Hero would not really be able to abide her treating his friends and teammates like chattel. If she was with him, though, she'd have no motivation to work on this. She had already achieved her goal. However, if figuring out how to be empathetic becomes part of what it means to be more human and therefore able to be with him, now she has motivation to fix this part of herself. 
making it possible they could enjoy long-term happiness in a reunion as well. So in conflicts, although the separation of Hero and Zero Two feels like the biggest gut check in the series, uh, their situation is basically covered by goals, as it may turn out that each of them has different thoughts on the matter. However, we do have some conflicts that have shown themselves again, so let's go through where they leave us right now. We have Hero losing the ability to pilot. Uh, this was an episode one conflict that seemed resolved when he could pilot Strelizia in episode four. Now we have reason to believe that he can't actually pilot with anyone besides Zero Two, maybe Strelizia as well, and so this might be returning to the fore. Like I said, we're kind of back to where we started. Hero the odd man out, and the Thirteeners down a Franks. Ichigo has made a proposal to address his issue, but that just leads us to the team is not a team. Well, even before Ichigo's stunt at the end, this was some major upheaval. Losing Zero Two and effectively losing Hero are obvious issues to their team's composition, but this episode really was about how it upset their team dynamic. From the early hospital hallway confrontation, you could tell that the group had synergized around the idea of Zero Two and were all on the same page. By the end, after not trusting her, then giving her a chance and regretting it, their synergy is kind of fractured. The interpersonal relationships begin to make various teammates take sides in keeping the two of them apart, as well as bringing some of them into conflict with Ichigo or Hiro. I suspect some of this will continue to crop up in the near future, as a lot of trust in each other has been eroded, um, especially with Ichigo's single-mindedness concerning Hiro and how that will affect things between her and Goro. Of course, we also have two conflicts about the physical nature of Hiro and Zero Two. Uh, we'll keep this under Blue Heart and Yellow Blood, but Hero's yellow blood cell count means he's at the edge of pushing into sorification. I don't know if piloting with Zero Two is the only thing that could push him over or not, but as long as he's at that edge, everything he does with either Franks or Klaxosaurs or Zero Two is potentially transformative. Likewise, Zero Two's changing body has not stopped changing. Even though she doesn't pilot with Hero again this episode, by the end, her horns are way more pronounced, as though on the way to returning to how they looked in her youth. If it isn't piloting, what causes this continued progression? What does it mean if it continues? Due to their separation, this conflict can now potentially affect the story without involving Hero or the Thirteeners at all. So then, we have no theme section today though I mentioned a few in passing, and all that talk about flaws and humanity are kind of thematic ideas anyway. Uh, we'll also skip the what to watch for and speculation boards again. Uh, like I said, this is functionally the halfway point of the series, and so next time I think we will retool our boards to prepare for going into the second half. There are many minor things we can abandon and clean up, and some of our forward-looking thoughts need to be re-examined based on what has happened in these last two episodes. So, uh, we'll do it then. As far as what I want to speculate right now, I really am at a loss as to what happens in the short term. I feel much better about my long-term speculations, actually, uh, but in the meantime, anything I guessed about the next few episodes right now would be guessing. Other than what I said in goals about Hero and Zero Two, I have no insight on what happens next. I don't even know if we will skip straight to the Grand Crevasse, or if our characters will first get a chance to make sense of all these recent events. There is one speculation I will add though, um, it's a little bit fun outlandish, 
uh, but it's related to our question from last time. Did Zero Two recognize Hero before now or not? I noted it throughout, and I mentioned that I think the replacement goldfish idea seems to be closest right now, but it leaves us with questions still. The first is, why even try to make a darling stand-in if she was still actively trying to become human? Immediately after the two of them seem to cross an important threshold during the target beta fight, she is still thinking to herself that she has to kill lots and lots of Klaxosaurs. So even then, she's thinking of her past darling. Is this like a girl looking for the one and content to date in the meantime, making the best of it but never caring if it really works out or not? Did she ever consider making a run for things with Hero, or was he always practice? And if he was practice, did she always try to turn her stamen to the same kind of thing as her? That could potentially explain why it killed most of them. If she was doing this though, does that mean that she was always planning to try to change her darling when she found him? Or was this a backup plan in case she couldn't really become human? Did she seize on what I suggested last time? That the way to break the story in the book is for the prince to transform as well, rather than just the princess? Was she exploring that as an option for the future? Or just planning to trick or force him if it came to it? It's odd to learn so much and still have so many questions. Her memory wasn't as wiped out as Hero's, obviously, but those opening moments suggest that she didn't remember enough to know him. Why? To answer that, I do have a few speculations about the circumstances surrounding those events. These may answer some of our questions, or they may be unrelated. So, is it possible that Ape Council doesn't know that Hero is the darling from back then? Did they think that maybe the boy was destroyed, but they kept that carrot in place for her in order to get what they wanted? They've let her search out her darling and find a man, knowing that it keeps her busy uh, because she can never actually really find him. Or were they even aware of the details of that event? See, here's my thought process. If her finding her darling was an impediment, their girl's silly search for a man, as they called it, and they knew that Hero was that man, wouldn't they have pushed that rather than resisting it? And if they did not want them together because they wanted the carrot to remain, wouldn't they have interfered and forbidden it instead? I feel like either way, it doesn't make sense for them to know that Hero was the boy who tried to spring her loose in their youth. But that raises an obvious question. How could that happen? To answer, I want to propose this speculation, something I talked about at length in the comments from last time. I think Dr. Franks is in a kind of reformed villain character arc. The villain might be the wrong word, as I think owing to his mad scientist ways, he's really more amoral than good or evil, but the torturing and experimenting on Zero Two is pretty hard to ignore. I realize a certain amount of emotional distancing is necessary for researchers or even medical professionals, but that was hard to watch, uh, for me anyway, and I wager I'm not alone. There's no need to show us Dr. Franks being involved in that if they didn't want us to have an emotional reaction to him as instigator. Hero and Zero Two could both react to that testing with or without his presence, which I think means that it's about him. It's about the audience seeing him do that. As I observe though, Zero Two seems to get along pretty well with the doctor, something that wouldn't make sense if their only interaction was him basically torturing her. Then there's all the various hints we've been noting that he's the one behind the 13th Squad's unique circumstances, 
and that he seems to be intentionally trying to let them proceed in a less controlled way. He also knows about Zero Two's wish, as we mentioned, a level of empathy we wouldn't expect from the guy who is shooting her with holes. So what happened? And what does any of this have to do with Ape knowing about Hero or not? Well, what if wiping Hero's memories, and maybe some of Zero Two's as well, wasn't about punishing them or some other villainy? What if that was his way of protecting them? Now why would he care? Well, let's suppose that after their capture, Hero and Zero Two are brought back to Garden, and Dr. Franks discovers that Zero Two, this creature they've been treating as a human-shaped monster, suddenly acts an awful lot like a human. She can even speak. That would certainly be a surprise, and perhaps an unsettling revelation. We've been doing things to this girl, and she's not as different from us as we thought. Is it possible Dr. Franks had a crisis of conscience? That he looked with sobering realization on his actions in the same way that Zero Two did this episode, once she realized she'd been doing things to her darling all along? And what of the boy that caused this change in her? Dr. Franks was already aware of Hero's sensitivity and his potential to affect others. He already intervened when other staff thought of trying to change Hero. He saw him questioning things and bestowing names, and now it seems his power of humanizing had even turned the little red-skinned girl into something more like them. Who is this boy that can create humanity in those around him despite how sterile and dehumanizing the world had become? Forget Zero Two. What if it is Hero that Dr. Franks is so interested in? Arranging for him to be an experimental squad, surrounding him with other high potential parasites and children he already knows, setting him up in a more enriching environment with a huge library and letting them all have way more autonomy than is normal. And then, when he appears to wash out, he arranges for Hero to be able to stay on anyway as he loads up Zero Two and Strelizia and heads for the plantation where he stashed him. But of course, Hero defied the society and tried to make off with the prize experiment. Ape isn't likely to look the other way on that, and I don't think they'd find Hero's humanizing ways the kind of thing they'd want to encourage. So, of course, he has to go. And as far as they know, he did go. They understand that the culprit was removed, and Dr. Franks wipes his memory so that he can't accidentally out himself. Maybe he takes just enough of Zero Two's memory that she can still be driven to find him, but not enough to actually identify him and implicate him to the Ape Council either. This would explain a little bit why neither Hero nor Zero Two brings up their restored memories and past with anyone else. They do have perfectly good characterization reasons not to do so, yes. But if there is actually some unknown consequence to these memories getting back to Ape, then saving that complication for another day makes some sense from the storyteller's point of view as well. And so, all that together, it means Dr. Franks has become a type of secret resistance within the system, a type of Snape character. By saving them and making it possible they meet again, he also inadvertently laid the groundwork for the characters to develop flaws and holes in themselves that have now brought them into conflict, but at least they will have the chance to make it right. So, that is it for what I suspect is a very long video. Um, we ended up with a three-part story with episode 12 through 14 there, a type of mini-climax to our series that will divide everything that comes before it apart from everything that comes after it. I'm excited for what's coming, and though I know this episode was a gut check for a lot of people, I hope you might be just as excited as me now. 
I'll see you next time in what I hope is a return to our normal format. See you then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.